Hello, and welcome back to SciSection. I'm your journalist, Amy Stewart, for the SciSection radio show, broadcasted on CFMU 93.3 FM radio station. We are here today with Dr. Dylan McKay, a nutrition and chronic disease researcher and an assistant professor of food and human nutritional sciences at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. McKay. Well, thanks for inviting me. So to get us started, tell us about your educational and career background and how you got started in your field. Sure. Um, I think I guess that all starts with um, when I was 13 years old, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And uh, that kind of put me on the career trajectory that I, that I have right now. Um, you know, getting diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, everything related to food is inherently related to, to your health in a way. Um, and it kind of put me on a path towards nutrition research, I think. So uh, after high school, I went into an undergraduate program in biochemistry nutrition at Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. I was thinking about medical school, um, but then I, I didn't get in my first time applying and I got in, I decided to do a master's in biochemistry. I got into a master's program uh, at, at Memorial University with, uh, with just an, two incredible researchers, Dr. Robert Bertolo and Dr. Janet Brunton, and they're nutrition researchers and they do uh, research uh, using um, Yucatan miniature pig models. So like animal models of nutrition uh, and uh, what I was looking at is the development of type 2 diabetes in, um, in this pig model and the early development, so the dohad, so the developmental origins of, uh, of the health and disease in, 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 these, uh, in a piglet model. And we raised pigs and, and looked at the potential of developing type 2 diabetes in them for, for almost 13 months. And that was my, my master's. And, um, and I really loved the research. And I, I I was, um, I thought that the career that, that my supervisors had just seemed like an amazing job to, you know, to supervise students, to sit on CIHR panels, review science. And it just inspired me that sort of, if I could, I want to be a researcher and, um, and, you know, having the research in diabetes being close to my, my own health um, was really what I, what I wanted to do. After that, I moved to do my PhD at the University of Manitoba. Um, and uh, sort of in a topic of nutrigenetics, um, which is the idea that, that you know, like a personalized nutrition and how our genetic makeup may influence our response to diets or, you know, you know, we might be able to influence our disease risk through, through our diet and that may be, you know, mediated by, by our genetics. In that PhD, um, you know, I started doing clinical trials. And so it's interventions with, with people uh, rather than, than animal models. And, and that really sort of fit for me because I think, you know, all of that mechanistic research eventually has to, has to work in populations and, and with people in, in the real world. And so uh, that is, that's the area where I really liked to, to research. After my PhD, my postdoctoral fellowship was also at the University of Manitoba, and I, um, I focused on, on, you know, clinical nutrition interventions in all kinds of different populations. Um, after a couple of years of postdoc, I was able to get a position at the Georgian Faye Center for Healthcare Innovation, which is a, a patient-oriented uh, research support center uh, in the clinical trials platform. And that was an incredible position for me. I got to work on designing and assisting mostly clinicians. Um, so, you know, physicians and nurse practitioners, that kind of thing, you know, psychologists, uh, people in the, in the healthcare system in designing clinical trials. And they were mostly related to lifestyle. And so that's that's essentially the work that I do now, and, and I really enjoy it. So the, the biggest connections I made were, were with some uh, nephrology uh, research, researchers and physicians, so nephrologists, doctors that treat people with uh, chronic kidney disease. And the University of Manitoba has probably one of the best uh, 
uh, kidney disease research groups in the world. And I'm very lucky to work with them. And so we have pro projects ongoing right now uh, with nutritional interventions. Really excited about one we just got funded uh, from CIHR uh, to look at metabolic acidosis in chronic kidney disease. And so as the kidney function begins to, to deteriorate in chronic kidney disease, the, uh, the ability to maintain acid-base balance in the body is impacted. And some people end up with metabolic acidosis. And so metabolic acidosis is associated with worse outcomes in chronic kidney disease and faster progression. So ways to intervene to, to correct that acidosis are obviously of great interest. Right now, it's treated essentially by giving people capsules of baking soda orally. And um, that treatment's not very well tolerated by people. It's something imagine like a volcano in your stomach. A couple times a day, you're taking these really big pills. Uh, and so the data around the world, but also in Manitoba, is that people discontinue that treatment uh, very often. And, um, and so we know if, if someone can't continue to take a treatment, it's not a very good treatment. And there's another option potentially through diet, where if you reduce the diet's acid load, or you provide bicarbonate equivalents in the diet, um, you might be able to sort of intervene in a different way without neutralizing the acid, just not providing it in the diet. Fortunately, fruits and vegetables are good sources of dietary bicarbonate equivalents. And there's been some preliminary trials that have shown that, you know, giving people fruits and vegetables can work almost as well or as well as, as a current medication that's used. And so one of the things that we're going to do now is we're going to have a feasibility trial where, you know, half of the people coming into the trial are going to, are going to get the, the normal pharmacological intervention, the sodium bicarbonate drugs, and the other half, we're going to deliver fruits and vegetables directly to their house. And not just enough for that one person in the house, but to all of the members of the household, because previous data suggests that if you just give it for the one person, they end up sharing it, and then they don't get the dose uh, that, that's needed to have the potential effect. So... We're very excited about that one, and we're actually going to start that in the next couple of months. That is some really cool research you're working on. I uh, mm -hmm. I love how you put an emphasis on lifestyle, and uh, it, it's so crazy that factors like good nutrition, something that is like has a lot to do with socioeconomical status, is something that really plays into this. I think that's really cool how it's intertwined with what you're doing too. Yeah, I think that's really important because in interventions and in nutrition, all of those intersecting factors are are so important, right? It, we could come up with a perfect diet, but if people can't get it or, you know, can't afford it, or if they can't store it, or they don't have the skills to, to prepare it the way it needs to be, or they can't shop for it. All of those are barriers that need to be addressed to make that intervention work, uh, which is why I, you know, the, the, the more I've been in nutrition, the, the more I like the idea of like, just give the people the food as close to ready to consumption and as easy it is for them to make it. That's really great. And I love how your story is very intertwined with your personal history too, what inspired you to pursue this career. That's very, it's very cool. Uh, yeah, that's 100%. Everything I eat influences my health. The other thing is that almost all of the interventions that I, I try to develop and, and work on, I like the idea of integrating them into the current healthcare system because we have an amazing healthcare system in Canada, I, th I think, and it needs, needs to be supported. But a lot of research sometimes duplicates what the healthcare system already does. Uh, you know, like if we did a trial and we recruited people and we took blood samples, but they were normally getting those blood samples in the healthcare system, that data is already being paid for. And then, you know, I'd be essentially duplicating that. So, so there, there's, a, there's ways to do efficient research and it also contributes to the healthcare system because I think the healthcare system, you needs to use its data to learn and improve. 
So the learning healthcare system and integrating nutrition research into it is sort of what I do, which I'm very happy about. That's very cool. I want to talk a little bit more about nutrigenomics now, which you said you worked in a little bit. And uh, that's a field that uses genetics to determine interactions between a person's genes, their nutrition and health. And you said it could be used to develop personal diet plans. Do you think nutrigenomics is the future of dieting? And how much do you think we can rely on our genetics uh, for what we should and shouldn't be eating? So I may have just hinted at it. It's sort of been an evolution of, of my research career. I started my PhD like really deep in nutrigenetics and the idea, you know, that maybe the right diet for somebody is dictated by their genes. Uh, and we just published a, uh, a trial in the American Journal of Clin Clinical Nutrition called Gene Predict, where we were, where we actually did a clinical trial where we picked some genes in advance that we thought were going to influence uh, response to an intervention. And, and, you know, based on previous trials, they've been associated with response but when we did a trial where we genotyped in advance and then intervened in, in sort of a, a better, I would say, methodological way, um, we showed that un unfortunately or fortunately for this, this set of genes, it, it didn't show any difference in, um, in the response. As I advanced through my PhD, you know, the more and more and through my, my postdoctoral work and, and subsequent jobs, I've seen that there's so many other factors outside of genetics that we just discussed that, that I, I think have a much larger uh, influence on people's health. Genetics may explain some things, but you know, even if you had certain genes that told you about an optimal diet, how you access and get that optimal diet is far more uh, likely to be influenced by your education, your neighborhood, where you were born, all kinds of other factors. You know, you can't change your genetics and, and most of those other factors are hard to change as well. I'm leaning less and less towards seeing that, uh, you know, personalizing based on genetics is, is going to be a, a way forward. Um, one of the big things that I see with that also is that it internalizes the health, you know, like potential health problems or the responsibility for your health outcomes based on your genetics. And in general, I just don't think that's a positive way to, to look at it, right? Our health is influenced by so many factors that I don't think individuals have the potential to change. And the idea of testing someone and giving them the diet, it just doubles down on that, right? So like, you know, if you have a, um, something like type two diabetes and, oh, it was because you had the genes, it's, it's, it may not be because of, you know, the food desert that you grew up in or, or the fact that, you know, you did never learned all of the skills or have had access to the resources to create a healthier diet for yourself. And, and those are not things that people can necessarily choose or change. I think they take like society and community-based changes. And I think that's where the most impact comes from. So I would say, you know, nutrigenetics, nutrigenomics is not the future of, of uh, selecting healthy diets. It's, uh, it's something that you know, I started my PhD and thinking that that's, this could be incredible. And then by the end and now uh, it's uh, completely opposite. So, you know, uh, I have to be open to new evidence and, and that's really been an evolution of my career. And that is really cool. And I'd have to say, I agree with the point you make. If people learn that the way they are and how they eat and their nutrition is because of their genetics, they're going to feel like it's a lot harder to change that. And I don't think that's a narrative you want to be sharing uh, when it's concerning people's eating habits. The other thing is I just don't see the effect size there too. So when you look at the impact of, you know, um, genetic variations, if we were finding, if, you know, other than things like say like phenylketonuria or, or something like that, where it's like a, a, a rare disease that's caused by a well-characterized variation in the genetics that has a huge impact. 
I think we know all of those basically because there's such huge changes to the phenotype or the outcomes that they're easy to find. But the genetics of common complex diseases like heart disease and diabetes, the influence of diet interacting with genetics, very, very small uh, relative to other things that we know that have a larger impact on, on um, you know, on, on those dis um, diseases, right? So, so when something has a very, very small influence and it, it's interacting with numerous variations, right? You could have like, let's say you had five variations that put you at a greater risk of diabetes. You could have 20 that put you at less how do you calculate that? And it becomes very complex. And it's not something I think that science is, is at the level to, to, um, to, to handle at the moment, maybe in the future. But then even if we can design the perfect diet based on the genetics, implementing that is going to still have all of the other barriers that we know exist to, to getting you know, a healthy diet. And with your career in nutrition, which has a lot to do with weight loss, I'm sure you see a lot of misinformation in your field and on the internet. And I know you're really big on combating that misinformation. So what do you think the scientific community could do to ensure that research is being heard by the people who need it and that it's being communicated effectively? It's about uh, approachability, I think, and, and humanizing the researchers that are there. And, and I know it's not for everybody in, in science, but you know, um, being available and, and honest and transparent is really key uh, on these things because every time that you aren't, there, there's so much potential for that stuff to be used for, for disinformation or to be used to discount. Uh, you know, so some of my research has funding from governments, uh, other, other projects that have research from industry, and it has to be very transparent about that. Uh, I'm very active on, on Twitter and approachable Increasingly more political, I guess. Being apolitical is just uh, is not something I think scientists can can morally be right now because that in itself is a stance. But uh, you know, fostering trust has to be about being transparent and approachable um, in 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 the translating our, our research. So you know, podcasts, social media, uh, everything that can get the message out there and see that you know the people who work in science and who generate this are are real humans with the same lives and, and issues that, that everybody else is. It's just, it's a job. That being said, it is a huge, huge problem to, to combat misinformation. And, and you see that a lot of the misinformation overlaps incredibly. Uh, and, and there are political forces that, that, that are, you know, fighting uh, in, in misinformation. And then there's also financial uh, things that, that push misinformation, especially in nutrition and dieting and, and like weight loss, right? Where the message comes from, I always think is like, why is, who does this message benefit financially? Because, you know, in, in many things in our society, it's, it's benefiting somebody and that's why they're putting it out there. And, and that's an important first step. Money can buy a lot of, of directed misinformation to keep, uh, to keep people going to, to their products. It definitely is a very dangerous cycle. I mean, we've seen it with climate change. We've seen it with COVID. Uh, it's very important that people get their information from experts that aren't um, influenced by factors such as like politics and financing and all that. But it's definitely a messy, messy field. Uh, okay, so for my last question, I just wanted to ask what areas of nutrition and chronic disease research are the most up and coming uh, and you think you'd like to explore further? Oh, I mean, a little biased when, when, I, when I say that, but I just, I think that the type of research that I'm, I'm getting to do now where, where you're delivering the foods to the people, uh, removing as many barriers as possible, um, and then leveraging existing healthcare infrastructure, uh, you know, to access the, the populations of people who, who really need the interventions is 
what I think, you know, um, nutrition needs to, to, to concentrate on nutrition interventions that have impact on people's lives and give the food directly to them is really what I'm excited about researching. That is really amazing. It definitely is the most effective way. It is the most simplest. And I feel like sometimes that's the way we overlook the most. I actually have wrote a, an article once called food isn't medicine. Uh, and some people will constantly say, well, Dylan, the exact type of work that you're doing now falls into food is medicine. And I, I, th I think it's a nuance that there may be particular places where food can be very important to health, but seeing it as medicine just rips it away from sort of a lot of the other contexts that it has and, and creates a, an environment where, you know, like scam artists and grifters really tend to be the most common rather than actual solutions for health. That is some very awesome research you're doing. I feel like it's going to help a lot of people and I think it'll be very effective. Uh, but that's all the time we have for today. Yep. So thank you so much for joining us, Dr. McKay. It was fascinating to hear about your research in nutrition and chronic diseases. Uh, and I'm very excited to see what your research has in store. Oh my, I can't wait to see what it's going to be going to turn out. So it's, it's what I do, what I do. Thank you for having me. Thank you again. That's it for this week of SciSection. And make sure to check out our podcast available on global platforms for our latest interviews.